Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's episode 77 and the great De Wet Hunt sees the English cornering their quarry in the northeast Cape Colony, close to Hopetown, he's surrounded. The mercurial Boer general has given up the plan to invade the Cape Colony and he's doing all he can to remain on the loose. He felt even more responsibility about the future of his commando because Free State President Steyn is travelling with him. And not that far away, in Bloemfontein, the Free State capital, the British and Transvaal Boer commander General Louis Botha met at the end of February, then a second time on the 7th of March in Middleburg to discuss possible peace terms. The commander of the British forces in South Africa, Lord Kitchener, presented Boerter with a set of ten terms which the English said they'd accept to make peace. The Boers, however, didn't get into this war in order to be dictated to by the English. It seems an incongruous position, the Boers technically defeated in most of their towns and villages and infrastructure out of their control, and yet here they are, negotiating their position as if they had a choice. A guerrilla campaign has left most of the west, north and eastern regions of southern Africa decimated. Boer property was being systematically destroyed in these areas in an attempt to force the men still roaming the countryside to accept defeat, but these actions were embittering the hardliners. Politically, this action was to leave a scar which would sometimes burst into violence in the coming century with uprisings during the First World War. In the Second World War, hardline Boers felt empathy with the Germans and some left the country to fight in Europe. Others trained with the Germans then returned to German Southwest Africa, or now Namibia, to continue the war. Much of the animosity emanates from this period, from early 1901 to 1902, when Lord Kitchener set the felt ablaze and ordered women and children into internment camps, which became known as concentration camps. So, General Louis Botha was not really interested in the British terms, but his wife had asked him to meet, and simultaneously he knew his people were suffering greatly. So he hoped that some way could be found out of this war, which he knew deep down he could not win. Botha was also aware of the role that Sir Alfred Milner, High Commissioner of the Cape, played. Milner was monitoring developments and was pressing for a resolution. While Milner was concerned by Kitchener's destruction of Boer property, he was more worried about the Cape Afrikaners rising up in support of the Boers, and the British High Commissioner was influenced by investors in London. Boerter called Milner the tool of alien financial vultures, and Kitchener ensured that Milner was nowhere to be seen when the British and Boers sat down once more for talks on the 7th of March in Middleburg. Kitchener realised before the final round of talks began, though, that the balance had tilted dangerously against peace. Meanwhile, Kitchener had accelerated his drives, where he was using tens of thousands of British troops to clear the felt of all Boer support and their supplies, like locusts, de Wet called them. The British commander was also trying to force Boers to decide, increasing the pressure at precisely the same time as negotiating. This, of course, is an old tactic, but the war against the civilians was backfiring. For the British officer corps, this was known as the hustling phase of the war. Hustling means to drive together violently, according to a Webster dictionary I have published 1882. On paper, it was like a sledgehammer being used to break a nut. Kitchener now had 200,000 men, including 140,000 regulars, to crack a nut of 20,000 at most. It was what is known as the war of a sieve, as guerrilla wars are, 
with the surviving Boers the most crack troops they had and most motivated, the best shots who could survive in no sleep or food for days and then win a skirmish. Like small drops of water, they'd find their way through the sieve and live to fight another day. Kitchener was forced to guard the Cape ports with thousands of men. While it was true the Cape Afrikaners had not risen in revolt, there was still the possibility hotheads would try to disrupt his lines of supply. After deducting tens of thousands of men guarding the towns, Kitchener was left with about 22,000 mobile men hunting the guerrillas in the eastern Transvaal, and only 13,000 of these were actual combatants. The wastage of war, 200,000 troops, and only 13,000 were rarely in the field in the Transvaal, while around 10,000 others were hunting Christian de Vett in the northeast Cape. But it was the English commander Allenby who had the clearest insight into this hustling and what it really meant as he watched the civilians herded and hustled into railway carriages to be carried off to the camps. It was a kind of new great trek of Afrikaners and bitterness would be its harvest. Allenby called it beastly work and wrote of it constantly in his letters home while his fellow officers often self-censored, preferring to avoid such terrible tales. Lord Kitchener didn't mention the camps or the civilians in his public dispatches at all. The walls of Kitchener's HQ were dominated by intelligence maps, showing these drives and data and flags, including kills. The war turned into dry facts and figures for the commanding officer, like a multi-layered chessboard scrutinized by an aggressive chess master. But for the British officers, the felt was a living hell. It was a fog of fear where smoke and dust moved and dissolved, where there were no lines of attack or defense, just skirmishes once more with an invisible enemy. Frustrations grew by the month, similar to Vietnam. Allenby found himself leading a force of 1,500 men with horse artillery guns, joined by seven other columns led by General French, sweeping the eastern Transvaal, while General Louis Boerter was in Middleburg contemplating peace. Allenby's main job was to stop Boerter's forces from heading into Natal. Allenby was also a romantic, writing love letters to his wife. In one he said, I'm tired of hustling Boers and should like to get back to England at you, dear love. We caught one of Boerter's staff officers yesterday. He said the war would last another year at least. The civilian refugees began to pile up in these concentration camps, which Kitchener had literally cobbled together as an afterthought. That carelessness was going to cause 26,000 women and children to die in the coming months from disease and, in some cases, starvation. The plan was a rough idea, and Kitchener left the details of how tens of thousands would be housed to two men in the new colonies, Major General John Maxwell in the Transvaal and Colonel Hamilton Gould Adams in the Orange Free State, or Orange River Colony, as the English now called it. A skeleton staff was dispatched to these camps of skeletons. One doctor, a handful of nurses, and one superintendent for each of the 24 camps. The plan was full of shortcuts. Lord Kitchener's preferred modus operandi. While his concentration camps were growing in the eastern Transvaal, Allenby, under the command of General French and his cavalry, was growing more disconsolate. The inclement weather didn't help. It rained incessantly in the first two weeks of March 1901, and Allenby was trapped by his own flooding river, as the vet was trapped in the northern Cape. 
Remember last episode, we heard about the epic march DeVette had undertaken, squeezed alongside the Orange River, which had burst its banks. Here, in the eastern Transvaal, heavy rains had caused the Asagai River close to Swaziland to flood, and his men were now bivouacked in a quagmire. Allenby wrote to his wife, I have lost 32 horses in nine days, only two of which were lost in action. The rest have died of exhaustion and short food. Isolated like we are, we must patrol to keep Brother Boer at a distance as well as to collect grub. The endless rainstorms lashed his men, who kept their morale high despite the conditions. They were marooned in more ways than one. Allenby's telegraph lines were broken by the flooding river and could not send any messages to French. The men were now sleeping in the open in the quagmire, and he was growing concerned. It was then he received a visitation from local Swazi warriors who brought him news. They had just overrun a Boer camp and killed 14 burghers. Allenby was secretly satisfied, but publicly he was forced to reprove the Swazis, who seemed to understand that it was all an act. This was supposed to be a white man's war, after all, where black South Africans were either logistic support or civilians, and Allenby had to officially rebuke his allies. And he had just run out of corn or mealies, as the food is known in South Africa. The Swazis graciously supplied his force with the crop while they waited for the river to subside. Across the country, to the west, Lord Kitchener was waiting for the Boers' response to his ten demands in the push for peace after negotiations of March 7. The drives in the eastern Transvaal continued unabated, and there were signs of success. In January, 859 Boers were captured. In February, 1,473, and by early March, he'd received notice that the rate was rising. Kitchener, though, was still unhappy with the pace. It would take him many months for all Boers to be rounded up, so he began to work on his new plan to institute, along with the drives. That was to install blockhouses throughout the vast plains. At first, this appears a somewhat mad concept. But he did have one major advantage. The Boers had no longer any cannons or artillery. This means they would have had to attack these tin-roofed concrete structures with firearms, and the structures were largely impervious to small arms fire. The second idea he had was to roll out hundreds of miles of barbed wire in conjunction with these blockhouses to cut off the flow of Boer guerrillas east and west, north and south. As he stared at his beloved maps, the plans for this major infrastructure build took shape. Kitchener received the bad news he had expected on March 16. General Boerter's answer came and it was a resounding no. The Boers would not surrender because, as he feared, the rebels from the Cape and Natal would not be granted amnesty. That settled it in Kitchener's eyes. It was time to start building the blockhouses. Some of these still dot the landscape in South Africa, more than 117 years later, a tribute to the quality of concrete and the building skill of those involved. Still, Kitchener blamed the failure of the peace plan on High Commissioner Milner's refusal to try and press for amnesty for the colonial Boers. As a military pragmatist, Kitchener was 100% correct in this instance, as he summed up the strategy. It was absurd and wrong, said the general, to make war costing two million pounds a week and thousands of lives just to put 300 colonial Boers in prison. 
I did all in my power to urge Milner to change his views, but there no doubt exists a small section who are opposed to any conciliatory measures, admitted Kitchener. He continued, Milner's views may be strictly just, but they are, to my mind, vindictive. The war office tried to soothe him with a few remarks about turning the screw a little tighter, and maybe the Boers would surrender. Kitchener knew now that was a pipe dream. However, Kitchener then dreamed up an even more extreme solution, and typical of a militarist who is rapidly losing patience. Why not, he said, conduct a mass deportation of all the Boers who'd fought in the war to the Dutch East Indies, Fiji, or even Madagascar. Get rid of them. It would rid the country of what he thought were dangerous people. He wrote that the Boers, in his words, would never be an asset to the British. They were uncivilized Afrikaner savages with a thin white veneer. That would make room, he thought, for decent British settlers. Ominous thoughts so early in the 20th century, so similar to the German Lebensraum and Hitler's idea of depopulating the steppes of Eurasia to replace what he thought were subhuman Russians with his Aryans. It was at that moment of apparent lunacy that Kitchener did produce a moment of profound political insight. He gave the British cabinet what the historian Thomas Packenham calls an astonishingly sound piece of advice. They could continue along Milner's path, or accept that eventually the British would have to give South Africa back to what he called the white people, who would then rule themselves, English and Boer. He failed to mention the future of the black people, the majority. At that moment in history, however, he foretold what would be the future of South Africa after this war. Milner at this stage, of course, ignored him. While Kitchener dreamed up one harebrained scheme after another, across the felt towards the west, General Christian de Wett was still trying to extricate himself from the folly of the plan to invade the Cape. A vast British force was hunting him down inexorably, and as we heard last week, he'd broken up his commander into smaller units, and these small groups began to filter back into the Orange Free State. He'd been defeated. De Wett himself was near Zantrift, travelling at night mainly, many of his men on foot as their horses had died or were too exhausted to be ridden. Remember too last week's episode how I introduced David Henop and another man as they'd stripped naked and swum across the Zantrift River, only to be told to continue riding sans clothing onwards as the flooding river was too dangerous to attempt a recrossing back. The two naked men found a farmhouse nearby, managed to obtain clothes and then made their way back to the Free State leaving their commanding officer behind. De Wett wrote, The enemy had, in the meantime, approached quite close to us, and we were again obliged to look for a drift upstream. It's typically understated, but you must realize that one of the Boers' most enigmatic leaders was as close as he ever came to being captured. They marched onwards 24 kilometers that night, in a daze, exhausted, stumbling in the dark. And it was during this night that a most extraordinary event took place. The vet writes, In the night, after crossing the Siuku River, we arrived at a Boer farm to which we were told 20 English scouts had paid a visit shortly after sunset. These British had left. Unknowingly, the vet and his men were travelling along the same road the English scouts were using. The general was as tired as the rest and now made a mistake. As the commander moved onwards, 
He forgot about the 20 Englishmen somewhere in his vicinity and says so in his book Three Years' War. I had sent no scouts before me, but rode, as was my habit, with my staff in front of the commandos. Throughout this war, De Wet had literally led from the front. This was an example of a general at home on the felt, with quick-thinking reactions, always in the centre of action, allowing him to make decisions which often led to victory. Modern commanders may wince at the idea of the commanding officer riding point, but remember, he had used extremely skilled scouts who roamed the landscape ahead of him and fed him important intelligence constantly. But tonight, of all nights, he had not sent his scouts ahead. Close to midnight, he noticed a hill in the dark. There was a moon. It was setting. After a short break, he spurred his horse towards the summit, when he caught sight of a group of horses fastened together and some men lying on the ground in front of the animals. The horses and men were not twenty paces to the left of the path among the bushes, he writes. I thought at first that they were some of my burghers who had ridden on in advance and were now lying there asleep. I myself had rested for a while at the foot of the mountains to give the burghers who were on foot a chance of coming up with me. The thought angered me, for it would have been against all orders that any burghers without special permission should go on in advance. De Vet galloped up to the huddle of men, reared his horse and shouted furiously, What do you mean by riding ahead like this? Of course, he yelled this in Afrikaans. Forgive me for my poor translation, folks. Something like, Wat die donner bedoel jylle om voren toe te rei? The men all sprang up simultaneously and shouted back, Who are you? in English. Hands up! De Vet shouted back, also in English, in what was surely one of the more comedic moments in this mad war. All their hands went up. There were now seven men standing, hands held high, but about 100 paces away, or 50 meters or so. The rest of the English scout contingent opened fire on De Vet and his small group. Being the man he was, the Boer general then yelled, Charge! And his men galloped towards the kopje from which the rifle flashes had just been spotted. The English there had already beaten a hasty retreat. The moon just dipped below the western horizon and suddenly it was pitch black and De Vette decided to call off any further attack. The word about what he'd done that night made newspaper headlines around the world. And so it was at dawn the next morning, along with his seven new prisoners, that De Vette and his commander crossed back into the Orange Free State. His men were weeping with happiness, many praying and declaring they would never enter the hated Cape Colony again. The irrepressible Boer general at that moment believed that he had witnessed a true miracle of God. This escape burned deep within his soul and sealed his men's fate. He would never give up, never sue for peace. It was a fight to the death and he felt that he was especially selected by God to achieve the aims of his people. This delusion of grandeur was to cause his men much pain and suffering in the coming year. At the same time, the British were utterly dumbfounded. Here was an anachronism on a horse, a man who they believed was a savage, who had run rings around thousands of their mounted patrols, survived rivers in spate, rode at the head of his army, took prisoners and captured enemy soldiers himself. Imagine Kitchener riding out on the felt in the front of his army, or later Douglas Haig in World War I, or Montgomery at Alamein, or even Rommel. The vet was surely a man from another era, and the mould from which he was made was broken. The miraculous escape was just that. 
and also forever solidified General Christian de Wet's identity as one of the most gifted guerrilla commanders of the modern era, an icon for future fighters. So now we will halt, with the Vets men kissing the ground of the Free State, free to roam once more and cause Lord Kitchener more frustration. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes, and you can send me a message through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. That's D-E-S-L-A-T-H-A-M. Until next week, goodbye. Sarimares,